0: It's Daily Thunder, booming out the truth of Jesus Christ live every weekday morning from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado. To learn more, visit ellerslie.com. Hi, this is Nathan. Before we jump into the Daily Thunder for today, I wanted to let you know that we have a week-long training program coming up this November 7th through the 13th. If you're looking for a short powerful time to be discipled and grow in your love and intimacy for Jesus Christ, I would highly consider you joining us for this week-long program this upcoming November. Now, we also just opened registration for our summer 2021 semester for both the week-long and the five-week programs. For more information about either of those programs, you can learn more at Ellersley.com forward slash daily. Now, in today's Daily Thunder, we had a whole group of pastors and leaders here for our Pastors and Ministry Leaders Summit. And as such, we asked Dan McConaughey to share his message on Left a Bang, which is a powerful enunciation of, well, I don't wanna spoil it for you. So without further ado, here is Dan McConaughey with his message, The Left of Bang.
1: Well, this is an application of some military Tactics to our position as leadership. And uh, there's this co- the phrase that's come out rec- not recently, but since about 2006. It's called left of bang. And for the most part, it doesn't mean much to a lot of people. You say, what, is, what does left of bang mean? Well, bang on a timeline of an Deadly force incident, bang, is when the deadly force incident happens. Before it happens is called left of bang. And after it happens is called right of bang. Okay, So right of bang means that the enemy has struck. The ambush is set. I remember the ambush has been made. The bomb has gone off. The sniper has pulled the trigger. The anthrax has been released whatever it happens to be. That's right of Bane. The damage is done and we're responding to it. We respond by returning fire, by taking care of our our team, by uh, trying to figure out how we'd missed it, all these things. The goal is to stay left of Bane. The goal is to stay left of Bane. being on the the end that's right of Bain means that the enemy has superiority. He's already got the element of surprise. He's probably already come and gone by the time we have even begun to think about how do we recover from this? What do we do? How do we treat the casualties? How do we return fire? How do we do this? I know this is probably awkward for some of you, but that's okay. okay. So as our position in leaders, we find Scripture consistently tells us that we are to watch over. Hebrews 13, we're supposed to watch over the saints. We watch over their souls, it says. In uh, 1 Peter 5, 1 through 11, the context of 1 Peter 5, 8 is that there are elders and who watch over the souls of others. And then it talks about our enemy, the devil, goes about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Now, that is something that we're supposed to do preemptively. We don't wait and say, oh, look, the lion's eaten the guy. It's too late. Too late. So we need to be, we need to learn how to stay left of bang, and that's what this is about. Acts 20 tells us that Paul called the elders of Ephesus to come to see him at the three taverns. It's a good place to talk, right? <laughs> that was a different kind of tavern than we have today, though. <laughs> um, and he told them, be on lookout. Be Aware, because wolves will come in from outside and from among your own selves. He's talking to the elders of the church at Ephesus. And he says, men will arise from among your own selves who will speak twisted words to draw the disciples to themselves. So he's warning them. He say, he's saying, hey, something's going to happen. This isn't something that Paul intended them to respond to after the wolves had attacked. It's not something that Paul intended them to respond to after men from among themselves. And so we begin to get the idea that we're called on to be alert, to be aware. So we want to talk about that a little bit. question arises when we talk about this as Christians, well, what is bane? If we're supposed to say left of bane, what is bane? And the, there seems to be, in my experience with being within the church and, and Christianity, there's three things that we look at as bane or that we can identify or confuse with bane. First one is The promised trials, tribulations, struggles, persecution. Because if, like Ray Comfort tells us, if we we present a gospel that says, yeah, come to Jesus, he'll solve your problems. He'll fix your marriage. He'll help you keep your job. He'll make it so that you don't have to worry about finances anymore. Your children will be perfect. Everything's gonna go fine. And so you come to Jesus So you come to Jesus, and what happens? Everything shatters. You get the promised trials, tribulations, persecutions, suffering, and you realize, wow, that must be the enemy. Because I was told when I got saved that God would make everything work right, that everything would go fine, that I'd have peace. We have a Western view of peace that's called the absence of violence, and yet the scriptural view of peace is is peace in the midst of violence. The whole word shalom does not mean the absence of of, uh, conflict. It means peace, the way things ought to be in the middle of conflict. But if we're taught that when we come to Jesus we'll have peace, then bane will happen. The second one is kind of fun also. If you didn't think that was fun. (laughs) And by the way, true disciples are anti-fragile. I don't know if you're familiar with the concept of anti-fragile, but on a continuum between fragile and anti-fragile, in the middle you get robust and resilient. On this side you have a wine glass, you drop it and it breaks. In the middle, you have a wine glass, you drop it, it stays the same. Out here you drop it, and it gets better. It gets stronger. It gets smarter. It gets faster. It gets quicker. That's why Jesus said, if a seed doesn't die, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. It becomes better. How many of you have a background in agriculture? How many of you if you planted a bushel of seed and harvested a bushel of seed would find that reason for joy. (laughs) No, we want it to get better. We want want to harvest more than we sow. And that's what the intent is of being anti-fragile. Somebody who responds to chaotic stressors, random chaotic stressors, by becoming stronger, like when wind blows on a tree like when your immune system works right. That's called the adaptive immune system. The innate immune system is what God blessed us with to stay the same. He blessed us with the adaptive immune system to take care of things like COVID-19. So we don't have to worry about that because God made us to get stronger when we're under pressure. (laughs) So we're not defeated victims. We're not just robust and resilient. If we are true disciples, men in whom the Spirit of God is, women in whom the Spirit of God is, we're actually made better, stronger, healthier, more conquering by the right responses to the promised trials. So those trials are not bang, they're the blessing of God. He says, we know, we know that God works all things together for good. Most don't know that. We know, according to James, that if we respond with joy, and rejoicing, and thanksgiving, it says, knowing this, that the testing of your faith produces patience, but let patience have its perfect work that you may be perfect and entire, lacking nothing. And what is it that we avoid more than anything in the world? Trials, temptations, the very thing that God promised would make us mature, godly, strong, better, smarter, faster, healthier, So there's a problem. We resist the very thing that God gives us to improve us. The second thing is when we make ourselves the enemy of God and become his enemy. The word, both in James 4 and in 1 Peter 5, says, God resists the proud. And that doesn't mean that I just, you know, God just says, I don't really like you very much. The word means to set an army in battle array and military order against an enemy for the purpose of attacking. How many of you want to still be proud (laughs) knowing that God sets his army in battle array against you and in military order for the purpose of attack if you're proud? So that is an area of spiritual warfare that I don't think that we should even have to concern ourselves with. We should humble ourselves. You do not want to have God as your enemy. And we actually make God our enemy by being proud. The other side of the story of that is in James, where it says, you adulterers and adulteresses, know you not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God? Whosoever, therefore, will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. And that word literally means active hostility, hatred, evasion, and bitter opposition to God. That's what God sees our friendship with the world as. That's another area that we can't afford to participate in. So what is it? Oh, and by the way, both Peter and James were writing to people he called brothers. He wasn't writing to unsaved people. When he was warning them about being proud and being a friend of the world, he was writing to brothers and sisters. Then we have number three. It's Satan's works of destroying and devouring, disrupting, distracting, deceiving, discouraging, and disservicing the saints. That is bane. That's the bane that we need to stay left of. Okay? Stealing, killing, making merchandise of, binding, spoiling, decaying, rotting, defeating, wrecking, ravaging, wasting. Those are all biblical words that the enemy does to us. And Satan, we're warned beforehand, that he goes about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may do that to. Jesus warned us, the thief doesn't come, but steal, kill, and destroy. What's the best idea? Wait until it happens and say, man, I've lost everything. Or to be preemptive and stay left of bang. okay? Short history of something called combat hunter, profiler and tracker. It's the I also call it the death of conventional warfare. We heard a little bit about this from our brother Kevin uh, yesterday, where in 2003, when he went to, um, when he was being sent overseas, when he was being deployed. He said that they went in with massive strength, a massive display of strength. Bombed the place out. But when they finally went over, they said, this is a different kind of warfare that we're doing. It's little things. Little IEDs. Little things like that. And so our historical and cultural view of warfare and and law enforcement has trickled down. I don't know if you realize it, but unless you intentionally resist it, your culture trickles down into you. Unless you intentionally resist it, your culture trickles down and affects you. Our culture has trickled down and affected us in the area of prayer and spiritual warfare. So we look at some of the stuff that the the historical way that we do this. In US military doctrine, we have have a way of we've over history we've had a way of fighting a war. And it's normally this normally has been the same for a long time. The Vietnam War is probably the turning point. I'm a Vietnam vet. And I experienced of this in various ways. Vietnam was the first major modern conflict when U.S. military philosophy and practice failed. Unfortunately, no major philosophical changes happened because of that. It took many years for it to change. But what happened was, we we have a really good example of it in 1907 and 1908. I wasn't there. I'm not that old. Okay? <laughs> I'm not that old. But in 197, 1908, the President of the United States decided to take the US fleet, which was only in the Atlantic. And Eric was talking, has talked about that. Back then, we didn't anticipate any kind of a danger from over the Pacific. We didn't see that there was any possibility of danger from over the Pacific. So we didn't even have a fleet in the Pacific. But in 1907 and 1908, the president sailed half the Atlantic fleet to the Pacific, called it the Great White Fleet. That's probably a mistake, huh? And had it sail around the perimeter of the Pacific to show how great the US Navy was and to Let everybody know that you don't mess with us. So he gave an impressive display of force. The primary deterrent during the cold war was a thing called MAD. It was called Mutual Assured Destruction. And it was basically victory by intimidation. We we tried that and they tried that and we came to an agreement that we would both intimidate each other to the point of the other person not doing anything but it's primarily been defensive primarily the us only responded when we were attacked we didn't anticipate an attack it's a, essentially reactive now the question when do we usually pray when we have a problem hmm? when we have a problem after bang We pray. Our goal is to stay left of Bain. When do you usually pray for a sick person? After they're sick. (laughs) When do you pray for the guy who's lost his job? After he's lost his job. When do you pray for the marriage? I have an interesting example that's awkward. Um... I believe that the reason that we have to respond to evil laws being made and laws approving of evil behavior is because we have failed to pray for our leaders. Preemptively, for centuries. I used to teach a class here called Fitness for Missionaries and Martyrs. And one of the questions I would ask ask the students is, when was the last time you prayed for President Obama? And on a regular basis, everybody said nothing. Is that the way we pray for our leaders? Yeah, it is, unfortunately. We don't pray preemptively. We wait until the fact, until bang happens. So, it's primarily defensive. We pray after the accident, after the domestic violence event, after the violent home invasion. We pray for those things. Another thing was that our opponents always used to be of a particular race wearing a particular uniform at a particular battlefield. That's the way it always used to be. They also spoke a particular language. And the battle was confined to the battlefield. We saw church as a safe place. Historically, the places of worship, the school, the hospital, have been seen as sanctuaries, and not the battlefields. And the enemy, especially in the Middle East, has taken advantage of that by putting their stores of chemical weapons and so forth under hospitals, under schools. This trickles down, guys. We have that view. We think things are going well. We see that... How many of you have heard of the Geneva Convention? Yeah. As far as we know, laws, the wars are regulated. We have agreements, conventions, laws, standards, moral, ethical, cultural, societal, religious, as if our enemy pays attention to laws. But we still think that way. There's this thing called UFC. Anybody know what that is? Yeah, it's kind of an MMA thing. But on your standard fights, the bouts are 5 minutes long. There's 5 of them, and they're separated by a minute apiece. In a championship, what are they? 7 minutes long. 5 of them. Or? I think I think the championships are a little bit longer rounds, but there's less of them. But they they have that, you know. They have regulations. They say, okay, it's going to last this long, and at the end of it, you get to stop and rest for a while, and you know, get your face patted with a sponge <laughs> and different things. In contrast, here's what we have learned the hard way: the date, time, location of the fight is unknown. The fight is on when and where the attacker appears, whether it be in the school, in the church, in the mosque, in the hospital. In October 6, 1973 was this thing called the Yom Kippur War. That was when I was in. And the Egyptians and the Syrians attacked Israel not only on a Sabbath, but on their most holy day of the year. And at that time, almost 75% of the military personnel in Israel were at home celebrating Yom Kippur. And so our brother Kevin talked about how he was in this situation where they didn't know where they were going, how long they'd be there, or what they were going to do when they got there. My unit, my battalion, woke up in the morning, went to go out, and our doors were all chained shut from the outside. And so we thought, well, no big deal. We're airborne ranger. We can jump out the windows. And so we went and opened up the windows, and we heard the bolts click shut, and we looked down, and about every four feet, military police with their rifles trained on us. We had no idea what was going on. Pretty soon they came in and said, be ready in four hours, we're going full combat. And in four hours, they loaded us on the deuce and a halfs, took us down, got us all parachuted up and rigged and armed and took us out to the airport, loaded us on the C-5s at Pope Air Force Base, and 1,200 of us sat for 36 hours, not knowing anything. (laughs) We had no idea why we were there, what we were doing, or Anything. And after 36 hours, they unloaded us, put us back on the deuce and a half, and took us back. And about two weeks later, we found out that they were going to drop us behind enemy lines in Egypt if the Israelis had not been able to make a go of it. And they did a fantastic job. They didn't need us. But who knows? How about the number of opponents? It's unknown. Two, three, 10, 200? 8,000. We don't know how many people we're going to be dealing with. There'll be no referees, no rules, no laws, no regulations. The fight may or may not include weapons, and we don't know which weapons it may or may not include. There's no rounds, time limits, rest periods. No information is available regarding the opponent's appearance, size, skills, background, location. Innocents are present, used as shields oftentimes by the enemy, and the innocents must not be harmed. Your, appoint, your opponent is not intent on defeating you. Isn't that an interesting thought? Our opponent is not intent on defeating us. His intent is terrorizing, disrupting, killing, and destroying you, your family, and your society. Everything you hold dear. And the attacks most often fall below military, the threshold of military conflict with hostile actions cloaked in deniability. Now let that trickle down into our understanding of spiritual warfare and prayer. So then this guy, General Mattis, Marine Corps General Mattis, came along. And in 2006, he requested the establishment of a thing called Combat Hunter Tracker Profiler. We're going to pay a little bit of attention to the Combat Tracker and Profiler. And what he required it to be is to produce people that were so adaptable that they were always ready for anything at any time, that they were self-disciplined to the point of having their awareness under control so that they could always be aware of everything all the time. They had accurate communication so that, with the least amount of confusion, they could accurately say, this is where we are, what's going on, and what needs to be done. They had a mindset of the hunter, watchman, sheepdog, protector. That was their mindset. That's how they thought. They didn't think of somebody who was being protected. They didn't think of somebody who was not in the midst of conflict. And they had what, we, what he called a bias for action. Most Christians today have a bias for passivity. Many pastors have a bias for passivity. There are some places in Scripture where the concept, for example, of non-resistance is legitimate, but not when it comes to the enemy, not when it comes to protecting the flock. So bias for action means that you will have a, an appropriate timely, effective, preemptive engagement that will either delay or diffuse or avoid or defeat. Bang. So it's proactive. It's not reactive. And Daniel 11.32 is a really fun chapter, fun verse. Here he is in the midst of a terrible, terrible battle. He's, he's seeing this thing. It's It's prophetic. He's not actually experiencing it, but he's he's observing it prophetically. And it's just destructive. It's, It's a physical battle, mental battle, emotional battle, spiritual battle. It's just terrible. And he makes this comment, And those who know their God will take action. Like Eric said the other day, I think it was on his Daily Thunder yesterday, Those who know their God will do it. That's what we're called to. So we need need somewhat of a toolkit for this. So we need to develop, part of the toolkit, our mindset. How do we think about things? Do we still think that the battle takes place on the battleground? Or could it take place right in your church? Did you know that the majority of child abuse in the church is not from people coming in, but from the caregivers for your child? for your children in the daycare center of your church. That's where the majority of child abuse in the church happens, by the caregivers. The second most is between the kids. Where do you suppose they learn that? That's interesting. And we spend all of our time looking for the bad guy out there wearing the overcoat and the boots and the hat pulled down over his face. Because of the trickle down From the way that we have operated as a nation as a culture for centuries we still think that way even spiritually so we need the mindset we need awareness we need to know what to be aware of and how to be aware of it so we have what we call pre-event indicators what are pre-event indicators that's where we we're analyzing behavior to determine emotions and intentions Now, remember I'm talking to us as pastors, as husbands and wives and fathers and mothers and brothers and sisters. This is within the context of the church that we're talking. So we have normal behaviors within a context that we call a baseline. And then we have abnormal behaviors within that same context. The next thing that we need is decision-making ability. Knowing when and how to make a decision, knowing what decision to make, and knowing how to take the action that that decision demands. Again, a bias toward action. Jesus commented on it, John 7. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Blessed are you if you do them. Our goal is avoiding, averting, preventing, diffusing, disabling, nullifying the attack before it happens. Now, the way the combat hunter thing evolved or proceeded or however we want to do it, the conclusion was if you had a minimum of three anomalies consecutively in the same context, the attack of the enemy was imminent and nearly inevitable, if you had three. So let's let's look at a couple of things here. First of all, the combat tracker profiler. Observant, aware, curious, attentive, proactive, and having an index of suspicion. An index of suspicion means I have a broad base of knowledge of what to look for. Index of suspicion is a term used in emergency room doctors where the greater their index of suspicion, the more apt they are to be right when they suspect what the problem is. And so, We need to develop that. We need to have an index of suspicion, what to look for. So how do we take initiative in the spiritual life? Well, first of all, we look at what the Word of God tells us we need to do preemptively. There's 25 times in the New Testament we're told not to be deceived. Now, one of the characteristics of being deceived is that you don't know it. it may take some friends and neighbors talking to you. It may take some humility on your part. But that's good, because otherwise you've made God your enemy. So, we need to not be deceived. And it's interesting that that's said to people who were not currently deceived. Because it doesn't say quit being deceived. It says, do not be deceived. So there's one of the first actions that we need to take. We're told, don't forget, remember. Said all the way through, the whole whole of Scripture. Said 25 times in the book of Deuteronomy. 75 times in the book of Psalms. 71 times in the New Testament. Remember, don't forget. What's the trickle down from our culture telling us? forget, don't remember. And the things you're supposed to remember, so interesting. Moses told the children of Israel, remember that you were a slave. Remember that you were rebellious. Remember that you made God mad. Remember that you were an idolater. And remember that God delivered you. Because if you forget any of those things, you're sunk. Also, Paul says in Acts 20, wolves will come in from outside. Have they done it yet when he was talking to them? No. At that time, the church at Ephesus, in a town of about 350,000, 120,000 Christians. Man. Paul had been there three years. Timothy had been there. Titus had been there. Apollos had been there. John the apostle was an elder there for 20 years. Mary lived there. Ignatius was... uh, leader there. And then you get to uh, Revelation 2 where Jesus writes a letter to him and says, you're doing great about everything except the fact that you've lost your first love. So they they had all these things. They had good doctrine. They had good discernment. They were taking care of the the false apostles that were in their midst, kicking them out, and they were doing great except They had lost their first love. So they were still left of bang, right? Bang had not yet happened. Because Jesus said, if you don't repent, remember, and do again your first works, I will remove your lampstand. Ignatius writes the same thing to him in 110, in his letter to the churches. And in the year 200, we have record of a group of Christian pilgrims traveling through Ephesus and making a comment in their journal. There is no evidence of Christianity in the town of Ephesus in the year 200. Bang happened. Now, What condition was the church in when Paul warned them? It was flourishing. It was doing great. But Paul warned them. He gave them clear evidence that something else was going to happen unless. And they didn't pay heed to it. So let's let's look at a few things. What is a baseline for us? When we look at normal behavior in a context... And this is for us as men and women of God, okay? We go and we look at the word of God to find out what a normal Christian life looks like. We don't look out there for what an average Christian life looks like. So, normal Christian life, what are some of the characteristics of it? How about faith, obedience, love, humility, shame. You say shame? Yeah, every time you sin you should be ashamed of yourself. Shame is a healthy thing. It leads to repentance. Shame is not bad. Don't believe your social media. Victory over sin, confession, repentance, under authority, great faith, active obedience, fear of God, hating evil, hating sin. Responding in worship, thanksgiving, praise and devotion, taking action, not a sluggard, not a lazy person, growing, bearing good fruit, godly character, praise and thanksgiving, rejoicing, evangelism, discipleship, suffering, persecution, trials, tribulation. That's the normal Christian life. That's the normal Christian marriage. That's the normal Christian family. That's the normal Christian church. So what are the anomalies? We have two kinds of anomalies. We have an anomaly called a positive anomaly. Not because it's good, but because it's above the normal line. And we have negative anomalies. Not because they're necessarily bad, but they are. Because they're below it, okay? So we don't look at this anomaly and say, Oh, look at that guy, he's a Christian. But look at, he's really good. That's not what I'm talking about. A positive anomaly means something is happening that shouldn't be. Something is present that shouldn't be. So let's just take an idea. How about you're in your marriage, okay? And you notice that you get irritated every so often at your spouse. That's an anomaly. Pretty soon you notice that it goes beyond just getting irritated. You're actually expressing frustration. I just almost stepped off here. That would have been fun. (laughs) That would have been an anomaly. (laughs) So you get frustrated, and you're actually expressing frustration. So now you have two anomalies. Are you paying attention? And your wife or your husband points it out to you justify it the next thing that happens is bang happens and you've done the destruction already so irritation, frustration rebellion, justification substitution, manipulation I was a great substituter I'd hear a message on prayer and I'd go and buy E.M. Bounds books on prayer and read them I'd hear a message on salvation and evangelism. And I'd go to the Lay Institute for Evangelism weekend seminar. And I'd hear it, it was, I just was a really good substitutor. Rather than praying, I'd read about prayer. Rather than evangelizing, I'd go to a seminar and justify well, now I know how to do this. Rather than being a loving husband, I would do loving things. Rather than being a godly man, I would imitate somebody that I thought was godly. Those are anomalies. That's not normal. How about what's present that normally shouldn't be present? That's what's happening, but what's present? How about pride, doubt, jealousy? How many of us have ever heard the theology that says doubt is normal and good and healthy and actually makes you an authentic Christian? And if you say you don't doubt, you're unsaved and full of pride. It's called emergent theology. Doubt is not doubt is not normal. Faith is normal. The traditions of men, denominational distinctives, these are all things that are present that shouldn't be. We need to pay attention to it. We need to pay attention to it. I had an experience with a guy one time I was an air traffic controller for 31 years. And he was a Christian man. He and I had great fellowship. He was an associate pastor in his church, his dad was the pastor, he was the worship leader. He and I had great fellowship. And one night on the midshift, when we didn't have very many airplanes, we were talking to each other, and he found out that I did not believe. And here we go, if I step on your toes, rejoice. <laughs> He found out that I did not believe in baptismal regeneration. We no longer had fellowship. He would not even speak to me. He actually transferred to a different area so he was away from me. Ten years later, he came to me and he says, Dan, I want to make a confession to you what's that? And he said, I got excommunicated from my church. My father disowned me. My parents disowned me. Really? Why? And he says, because I came to the conclusion that you were saved. He said, I've been watching you for ten years, and I can't explain your life other than that the Spirit of God dwells in you. He said, I went home and told my dad. And he told me, pack up and leave. That's a denominational distinctive that needs to be dropped. As soon as we start separating, just because of denominational distinctive, now that was also a biblical heresy. You are not saved by baptism. But there's many Christians in those churches. Many Christians in those churches. And we can't say, well, because you believe in that, I'm not going to have fellowship with you. How else will they hear the truth? Right. And what will Bang happen? What will Bang do when they find out that you didn't tell them? Man made divisions within the body of Christ. For example, who can make disciples, who can teach whom, who can baptize whom, who corrects, who's available to be corrected. I know a lot of pastors who are not available to be corrected. They're right. They're the pastor, right? We have negative, negative, uh, I'll, I'll go into the styles, forms, methods, systems, and techniques. How about we meet in homes? we meet in buildings we're formal we're informal we sit on pews we sit in rows we sit in circles we sing with instruments we sing a cappella. we have a song leader we have a worship band we take an offering we have an offering box we use keynote we not or not we have a bulletin or not we have potlucks or not we have sunday school or not we have a youth group or not we have child care or not as soon as we say that's the way you do it it's it's an anomaly Then we have the negative ones. These are the ones that should be there, but aren't. These are the anomalies that should be present. The the things that should be present, but aren't. For example, love, forgiveness, knowing the right thing to do and doing it. That should be there. But if it's not, if you know the right thing to do and don't do it, that's an anomaly. Gratitude, thanksgiving, encouragement, prayer. And what's happening that normally isn't there? Or what isn't happening, I'm sorry. What isn't happening that normally should be? Obedience, confession, repentance, humbling. The kernel elements. Things like reading the Bible. Studying the Bible. Praying. So, baseline plus anomaly Equals a decision that you have to make. And that decision has to be with a bias toward action. And after three of them, I think, you, I think we can accept that. I think that if we have three of those cons- consecutive anomalies within the same context, we need to be aware that the enemy is gonna jump and get you. He's gonna, bang is gonna happen. And we have an example in Second Corinthians 11, 1 through4, where Paul says, "I'm jealous for you guys with a godly jealousy." Now you remember, jealousy has four parts to it. It needs a lover, a beloved, a covenant, relationship and a threat to the covenant. A threat. When does a threat happen? Left of being. Okay? Things hadn't happened bad yet to the 2nd Corinthians. Okay? So he says, I'm supposed to present you to God as a righteous, pure bride. But I fear for you, lest as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, that you also would be distracted from the purity and simplicity of devotion to Christ. And then he gives, well, let's talk about Bang there. What was Bang in Eve's deception? The fall. What was the consequence of Eve's bang? Spiritual death for the human race. That was, big <laughs> that was a big bang. That was a big... Huh? And it's not a theory. And it's not a theory. <laughs> so, if Paul says, as Eve was deceived, you also What do you think the consequence of being distracted is? Another big bane. Another big bane. And then he gives his three anomalies. Isn't it interesting? Three anomalies. When somebody comes to your church and preaches a different Jesus, you just accept it. When somebody comes to your church and preaches a different spirit, you just accept it. And when somebody comes to your church and preaches a different gospel, you just accept it. Three anomalies. So we have clear evidence from Scripture. So what we've done today is equipped you is something that you need to put in practice. Because you watch over their souls. You also watch over each other's souls. Your family's souls. Your marriage souls. Maybe your business. Your community. Your nation. I want to challenge you. Always be ready. Be alert and aware. Have a bias for action. And stay left of vain. Let's pray. Thank you, Heavenly Father, that we have you. And thank you, Lord, that you watch over our souls. I pray, Lord, that we would be wise with what we have heard and learned And that we would cast our cares on you because you care for us. Lord, we commit ourselves to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Daily Thunder is a listener-supported
0: production of Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Daily Thunder is delivered live and streamed daily Monday through Friday at 8.15 a.m. And our weekend service is streamed at 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings. Join us at live.ellersley.com. We invite you to visit us at the beautiful Ellersley campus in Windsor, Colorado for a day, a week, or an entire season of gospel-centered spiritual training. Learn more at ellersley.com. Thanks for listening.